Welcome to the Finding Joy podcast, where we shine a spotlight on the joy that exists in the lives of people all around us. I'm Jerry, along with Benji and Rob. And this week's conversation, we talk with Dr. Lamar Hardwick. He is actually the former pastor of Benji's church. Yeah. And we get into some different subjects. One of them, the fact that he has autism. He's on the autism spectrum, Mm -hmm. and he shares his story about that. And then also, we're going to get a little more hardcore, I guess you could say, to tie in with the times and talk about what's going on in our society today and and the racial tension that is out there. Right, right. Lamar is an African-American pastor, uh, just a great guy. And I'm just glad that you guys got to know him a little bit in this Zoom conversation. And uh, just the autism part of his story is so unique because he got a diagnosis very late in life. So you're going to really be intrigued with this story, I think. So because of social distancing, we had to talk to Dr. Hardwick via Zoom. So let's go to that conversation right now. Well, guys, I want to introduce you to um, my former pastor. He's still a pastor and still doing his thing. Dr. Lamar Hardwick, thanks for joining us, man. Thanks for having me, man. Yeah, absolutely. It's been too long. Now, Dr. Hardwick was the uh, pastor at New Community Church in LaGrange, where I live. And now you have moved on to uh, a new church in the East Point area of Atlanta, Mm -hmm. Tri-Cities Church. Can you tell me um, or tell us uh, a little bit about your church? Uh, Well, Tri-Cities Church is um, a very young church. It just celebrated seven years. It's just now sort of coming out of the church plant mode, if you know what that means. Growing church, very... um, diverse, multi-ethnic, multi-generational. And it sits actually on the campus of the old Atlanta Christian College, which is now Point University. Our church is actually their old chapel. Right across the street and behind us is a whole campus that Atlanta Christian College moved away from when they moved to West Point. So it's it's a great little church, very generous people, very lively bunch. And so uh, our family, we're we're glad to, to be there. What did I ask you, Dr. Hardwick? Did, were you the one that actually planted that church? No, no, I did not. So there was a team of a few people that planted the church um, seven years ago, and I am actually the second pastor. The previous pastor um, was also doing work with Stadia, which is a church planning organization mm-hmm. uh, that, that planted Tri-Cities Church. Um, and so he felt a call to move into that full-time uh, to help church planners uh, all across the region. Um, so he's um, doing that full-time. We we have a great relationship. He and I are good friends. They actually lived until his wife enrolled in seminary at Asbury. They lived in the community. So even after I became the pastor, they attended attended the church and hung out with us for a few months before they left. So, yeah. In the midst of the time that you were at New Community Church in LaGrange, there was something that I I would say it was a a huge change for your life uh, with a diagnosis of Mm -hmm. autism. Can you take us back to what led up to that diagnosis and sort of how life has changed since you uh, you received the diagnosis. Good question. I get I get this question a lot about you know being diagnosed on autism spectrum as an adult. I was 36 when I was diagnosed, and so a lot of times people ask you know what happened. Why don't you think you were diagnosed as a child? And so there's there are a lot of reasons. You know I'm 42, so in the 70s, late 70s, we didn't know as much as we know now, uh, especially if someone didn't have a co-occurrence of an intellectual disability. I was in the generation where boys just 
are slower developed, more slowly developing than girls. He's just shy. Sometimes he's just a bad kid, you know, just so I said that to say I, I always knew there were some differences between me and other kids. I, I started figuring that out about age seven or eight. I didn't have the language to describe what was going on with me. Uh, my mom talks about in second or third grade, she had a teacher say, you know, Lamar is very smart, but there's something wrong with him and I can't quite figure it out. And so I, I sort of just started going along to get along. I faked a lot of things that the best description I can give is that it felt like the world was in on an inside joke that I didn't get. Fast forward to adulthood, you know, so those things are always challenges for me, but I learned how to fake a lot of things. Coming up to becoming the lead pastor at New Community Church, was, I really hit a breaking point. I was really challenged with a lot of things, I was having a lot of anxiety attacks. And so long story short, I started to really revisit some of the challenges that I had always had. So there was a gentleman that was there who worked on staff with me. And when I was doing my doctorate, I had to, um, I had to ask seven people to do an evaluation of me. And so this gentleman who was on staff, someone who I really respected, wrote, and I quote, Lamar has a difficult time picking up on social cues. Lamar gets laser focused on one thing at a time. And it, his evaluation of me that was for a school project literally read like diagnostic criteria for autism. And so I, I did my homework for about a year. Uh, I didn't even know what a social cue was. So like most people, when you don't know what something is, you Google it. And so I Googled it. I ended up learning a lot of the things that people were saying about me had actual terms. And so after about a year of me doing my own investigation, uh, I finally got the courage to ask my wife. And I went to her and said, I think I know what's going on with me. And I think I know what some of our communication problems are. And so in December of 2014, I was officially diagnosed, although I knew as early as seven or eight that there were some things that I just didn't quite understand. And so, yeah, it was a it, it changed a lot, but I think for the better, because I finally had the language to understand myself and to teach people how to understand me and then to just let go of the, the baggage and the guilt of not understanding why I don't understand certain things. And so it actually, it actually made me more proficient at what I do because now I understand how my brain works. Hmm. What do you think are the biggest misunderstandings that happen in society with someone who is on the spectrum? Well, there's a lot. I think probably I would say we don't really understand the concept that it, it truly is a spectrum. And so there's sort of a saying uh, in the autism community that if you met one person with autism, you met one person with autism. Mm -hmm. um, and so, so everyone's different. I, I think one of the biggest misconceptions is that if you can't see the things that I struggle with, then they don't exist. Uh, and so I often joke with people, you know, don't let the smooth taste fool you. <laughs> There's a lot of things that I, I'm challenged with that I work really, really hard. So mm -hmm. things that are, are more instinctive to people who are, are what is considered uh, neurotypical, there are just things that you instinctively know to do, instinctively understand, like body language and social cues. Those things are not so instinctive to me, but you can't see it. And so I have to work really, really hard at things that are simple for other people. And I think that's that's a big misconception. And it gets more challenging, I think, the older you get, because people have expectations of you and they can't see this quote unquote invisible disability that you live with. And so... It can be quite challenging, especially socially, to meet people's expectations. And then you factor in, I'm a pastor, uh, and church is highly social, especially in the in the West. So I think there's there's a misconception there that 
because you can't really see what I'm challenged with that it doesn't exist. But there's so many other things I think that we don't really understand about autism. You bring up a very interesting point that it's something that's invisible. And if you don't know someone is on the spectrum, how can you figure that? I guess I'm asking for advice for how people who aren't on the spectrum, as you said, are neurotypical, how we can best prepare to deal with someone who maybe is without even knowing it. If I just met you on the street, if we were just doing this interview as you being Benji's former pastor, not knowing about you're the autism pastor, I wouldn't mm -hmm. have any clue mm -hmm. that, that you were on the spectrum. So, so how can people, without saying, hey, do you have autism? Deal with that in a way that is loving and patient and, and that kind of takes that into account. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think... It's, there's some truth to that. Like you wouldn't know. I think if you, the longer you hung around me, the more you'd start to see some of my quirks, which is what happened in the transition to me becoming the lead pastor at my former church. A lot of, because I spent, you know, I was a youth pastor. And so I would joke that no one noticing them because all teenagers are socially awkward. And so <laughs> I just fit in with them, which is why our youth ministry was jumping. I mean, we had hundreds of kids, but I think all the kids that didn't fit in anywhere else felt comfortable because I myself never fit in anywhere. And so there, and so I think you, you would see it. I don't know that you would know how to, to label it, so to speak. But I think one of the things that I share with people was a question that I had to ask myself. And it's a question I challenge people to ask themselves if you're talking about not knowing whether or not someone's on the spectrum. So, so it got to a point where, you know, I was hearing a lot of things and it was coming in adult language. Uh, this was in a transition to me becoming the lead pastor at New Community Church. And I finally had to say, you know, everyone can't be wrong. I've been hearing this my whole life. And so the question I asked myself was, what do people experience when they experience me? Hmm. Because what I thought it was, was not what they were actually experiencing. So if you think about um, not being able to understand body language and social cues and those things, if, if it's true that 90% of communication is nonverbal, you can understand if I don't get that, then I'm missing a lot and yeah. how that could really be challenging for a relationship because people think I understand why their face looks that way or why they're standing that way. And I don't. And so when I asked myself that question, I began to understand that it's not just, it wasn't just a good question for me. It's a good question for everyone. And so in answer to your question, I think that question makes us just treat people more kindly in general, because I'm always asking myself, what am I, how am I coming across to people? You know, we live in the generation where we like to say, I don't care what people think. And I think it, to some degree, you don't need to allow people to shape who you are, but I think we need to also get back to, you know, to some degree, I should care what people think because I should care if people had a good experience with me. I should care if if I said something that was offensive, I should care. And so for me, those, those are things that I can't always control, but I'm still very aware that that might happen. And so I'm I'm always working really hard to make sure that I'm doing my best. And I think that's a good place for everyone to start is to say, you know what, what is it like when people experience me? And it makes you it makes you have more grace. It makes you have more patience. It makes you really want to get to know a person, to not write them off. And so I think that's a good place to start. What is it like when people experience me? Is it really what I think it is? Or are they walking away with a totally different experience? And if, if, if it's not positive, how do I adjust how I treat people? Hmm. You've done a lot of 
over the last few years, a lot of introspection and a lot of, obviously, a lot of looking into how you are made up. But some, um, I, I would think that most people would just stop there. They would just try to figure out how to adapt to the world. But you have turned your diagnosis into a ministry with uh, Autism Pastor, and you can find out more info at autismpastor.com. But tell us about what inspired that to become a ministry for you, too. Interestingly enough, I didn't come up with that term. I found that when I, so so let me back up. First, I, I became, I disclosed my diagnosis with the church and essentially ended up being the world because people listen to our podcast and our app. When I was at New Community Church, it was, Mar- I still remember it was March 8th, 2015. And I did it in a sermon. And I did that because I didn't want anyone to come to the church. The church was growing. and I didn't want anyone to come and have a bad experience with me and me not know it because that happens to me so much. Like I can think we had a great conversation, but because I don't understand body language or social cues, sometimes things that I say or do, I don't, and I don't understand when my facial expression looks a certain way either. And so I realized, you know what, I got to get out in front of, of this so that I don't unintentionally offend people. And so that's why I did it. What ended up happening though was as I became more open about it, I had a, a large contingency of people in the autism community and even the disability community at large who didn't go to church, who weren't Christians, who started referring to me as their pastor. I was the only church that they got. And so that term autism pastor came from them. I became the pastor to a community that doesn't go to church. So I realized that God was maybe wanting to use that as a ministry to, to reach an often unreached group of people. If you look at most churches are not very good at reaching the disability community or special needs community. And I saw, I saw God building a platform for me to be able to not only serve them, answer their, their questions about faith, about God, but also because I'm a pastor, I saw it as an opportunity to speak to the church on behalf of that people group and say, we can do better. We can you know, adjust some of the things that we do. This is a group that is largely absent from our churches. And so it became a ministry of both of not, of me, not just trying to get better for the world so that I can become more acceptable to people socially, but it also was a ministry for me to try to change the world's view of people with autism and, and other disabilities and particularly help to change the church's view so that those people that I'm always talking to can find somewhere to go to find someone to, to a community that, that they can also belong to. So it's, it's both and me figuring out me, but also figuring out how I can help make the world better for people like me. Hmm. And you've used your own experience too. And you wrote about your, um, your life in, in your book, I am strong. And this, I remember when you were uh, about to put that book out and, and the, some of the messages from that time and uh, just so impactful. Take us to the, the biblical focus point of that book that, because it is just, it's so good. If you could just, just sort of explain the, the synopsis of the book. Mm-hmm. The whole book, uh, the title I Am Strong is based on Paul's wrestling with his thorn in Corinthians, uh, where he says that I've been given this thorn. And he talks about three times he begged for God to take it away. And God said, no, my grace is sufficient. And then at the end, and I always thought, I don't know why, I always thought that it says for when I'm weak, then he is strong. But if you read it, that's not what Paul says. He says, for when I'm weak, then I am strong. 
you know, after I was diagnosed, I read that again and it was like the words just leapt off the page. And here's why, because there's a part in there where he says, so now I'm glad to boast about my weaknesses. And it wasn't really that part that excited me. It was the B clause. It was so that the power of Christ can be seen in me. For me, being newly diagnosed, being a pastor of a growing church, I realized uh, that's it. I need I need people to see Christ in me, despite all of my quirks. There are a lot of things I'm going to mess up. But the thing I desire most is for people to see Jesus in me. So when I stand on the stage and preach or whatever it is I do, and I want people to see. And so I leaned into it the same way Paul leaned into it. I said, okay, this is, this is my reality. God's not going to take it away. And so the whole book is sort of built on that premise of discovering who I am, understanding that God didn't make a mistake. God knows exactly what he's doing. And if I just lean into that, there's, there's some strength that comes that will allow people to see Christ in me. Interestingly enough, I, I love that Paul says, and you kind of get this in the book, that it wasn't, if you read it, he says, I was given a thorn to keep me from becoming conceited. Hmm. And so Paul never says that his thorn, and a lot of scholars believe it was some kind of disability, maybe he had epilepsy. We know that he was going blind, but he never says that that kept him from becoming the best version of himself. He says it actually kept him from becoming the worst version of himself to keep me from becoming conceited. Mm. And so what I realized is that this doesn't have to keep me from becoming the best servant that I could be. I'm going to have some challenges. And so the book just talks about the process of me discovering my diagnosis. And then towards the end, I give some tips and tools that I learned of how I'm able to manage being a pastor and it just weaves in in and out a lot of Bible stories as examples of how I learned about myself and things that I've learned to do to, to ensure that my quote unquote thorn, although I don't necessarily think of it that way, it, it, it almost ensures that I'm not going to allow this to cause me to become a worse version of myself. I'm going to lean into it and allow God to use it to make me the best version of Lamar that can serve Christ. So that's, that's sort of the book in a nutshell. Yeah. Well, we'll uh, link to the website that has uh, info about the book and highly recommended. So y- your shirt, I was noticing your shirt yeah, there. The sh- I love that. that too. <laughs> well, the church is literal the now, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Does that predate the pandemic? Um, no, actually, my wife and kids got me this for Father's Day. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. That's great. Uh, so I, I guess you guys are, are doing live streaming right now for your services at Tri-Cities? We've been doing like simulated live. We record it Sunday evening and then we play the following week. But we're, we're inching towards just doing it live as you know as time progresses on. So that's worked for us because I, w- I wasn't confident in our ability to go live just yet. Yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> Better safe than sorry. Yeah, yeah so right, that right. gives us a week to do some post-production magic. Yeah. Sure, <laughs> sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. People watching be like, man, they, they really know how to do this well. Huh? Yeah, <laughs> that, that was like take 10. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can certainly relate to... Uh, Take ten with all of the <laughs> the online services I had to produce and all you of the worship. You didn't do them live either. No, we didn't do them live because we actually did them separate. We had the pastor at his house. We had mine. I my worship set at my house. Oh, man. So I would just put the two together and 
you know, it was, there were 10, 12, 15 outtakes. There's a know? whole lot of tech learning going on these days. <laughs> yes, That's for sure. That was for sure. That was a fascinating discussion with Lamar. I feel like I can call him Lamar now. I think we, you could. We've known him. We've we met him. we talked if to him like on me, Zoom. If you're like me, I can call him Pastor L if I want oh, to. Yeah, I don't know if I go oh, quite yeah, that I don't far. think you can go I don't that think far. I can pull yeah, that off. on that circle yet. <laughs> but just a, an amazing story of what he has been through. And it, it was in his 30s before he got that diagnosis. But right. all his life he said, I know there's just something different about me. Right. I didn't see things the way some people did. I wasn't picking up on some stuff other people did. And he finally got that diagnosis. And he's just amazingly turned that into kind of a strength almost as that's one of the major focuses of his ministry. Right, right. And also there's the fact that he is African-American and we want to talk to him about, and this is, you know, it gets a little more serious in the second part of this discussion, but just the current environment that we're living in and how we as Christ followers should be looking at yeah. racial reconciliation. I think it's an important conversation that should be had. Absolutely. Also, he was Benji's pastor. That's right. So we're going to see if he's got a story or two <laughs> that he can share. A little bit of uh, ecclesiastical dirt on Benji, perhaps. Oh, man. There we go. Hey, guys, we've got something new at thejoyfm.com that is very exciting, and that is our Joy FM job board. Yes, we just it, – it, it's the time because so many people are out of work, and there are also employers that are looking – for people. So we thought, why not? Let's connect the two. So this is an opportunity. If you own a business and you are looking for people, well, you can post your jobs up there absolutely mm-hmm. free. And we want to encourage those that are looking for employment. Well, check out the job board at thejoyfm.com. We want to we want to help you find work in this time right now. And workers, if you're looking for workers. Yeah. It's thejoyfm.com, the top navigation bar up there. It says jobs. That's what you click on. For those struggling with dementia and other memory issues, the world, it can be a lonely place for them. I'm Jules, and on the latest episode of the Jules Show podcast, we're going to learn about a new ministry in Macon called Sanctuary Respite Ministry. It's providing a community for those dealing with memory loss. Creating a space for socialization. We have a chapel service once a month. We have a goal to have a choir, a side-by-side choir by the end of the first year. Go to thejoyfm.com slash Jules or anywhere you subscribe to find podcasts. I want to hear stories about how Benji was as a parishioner when you were. Uh, <laughs> yes. You got to have a Benji story or two, don't you? I do have a funny story. Oh, boy. Oh, good, good, good. Uh-oh. <laughs> do tell uh, so this was, you know, back back at New Community Church, we would have like promotion Sunday when the fifth graders uh, who were going into sixth grade would come over and become officially part of the youth group. And so I think at this time I was the pastor or it may have been in the interim, but I was still pretty much leading the church. I just remember us throwing a big party. I wasn't in the room because I was in the large sanctuary. You're laughing because you know where I'm going. <laughs> I know where you're going. <laughs> so a big party and Benji, and we would always ask Benji to come and DJ because he just knew how to move the crowd and move the kids. And so in the middle of the service and the adult auditorium, the fire alarm goes off. <laughs> and so, I mean, like we're, we're in worship and the fire alarm goes off. And here's the irony. We were singing, set a fire down in my heart. <laughs> 
But it turns out that Benji had the party so jammed and slamming that they turned on the the fog machine. Yeah. And it it set off the smoke alarm. Oh boy. Did it set off the sprinklers? No, no, but it didn't. Fire trucks came. Those guys were full. They were suited up. They were ready, man. It was hilarious. What's funny is nobody in the service moved. It was like uh, no, nobody moved. Hey, that's, a, that's that's a malfunction. Come on, yeah, just just keep worshiping. I just said no. It's the Holy Spirit that took over. Yes, it's the trump. The trumpet has sounded. We're going back. Right? Yeah, right, right. Yeah, that was that was pretty funny. Oh, that's, man, you had to bring that up, didn't you? <laughs> that's just, uh, that means it was a good party. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I, you know. And I've always loved New Community Church. You know, from the from the moment I stepped in, I knew there was something different about that community. And for several different reasons, I had never even been a part of a com- contemporary service before I came to service there. And then just to see the diversity there hmm. is incredible because it's been said that the one of the most segregated times in our country is, you know, when it's time to go to church. Because people go their their separate ways and and follow with the culture that they're just accustomed to, I guess. Mm-hmm. I don't want to jump into what's what's right and wrong, but it is refreshing to me to be a part of a community of believers from from lots of different cultural and and racial backgrounds. And and you've moved on to a church like that, from what I understand. So it's yeah. it's important to you too, right? I absolutely. I when I went in and um interviewed for that job, I told them I said, you know, this church reminds me of a younger NCC. It's just it pretty much the same. Diversity is a big deal for them, very intentional. So I imagine this is what new community was like when it was six or seven years old. So that that made us very comfortable to know that we were going into a space that also valued diversity. We're living in a, a really tough time in so many ways with the pandemic going on of course that's that's got everybody staying at home but now with instance of police brutality being headline news and protests that have followed since then what what's your take on what's going on in our world right now and what what is God up to mm. what do you think God is up to for a lot of people they're they're now in some ways experiencing and seeing some of the stories that some of us have lived and maybe don't even talk about. And so for me, I think it's a good thing. You know, it's it's sort of a apocalyptic and I know people get crazy about that, but that just means an unveiling, right? And so I think what God is up to is that all of us sort of live. I, I remember the first time in seminary years ago, discovering that I had a cultural lens that I looked at the world through. I think I think we all wrestle with that because I just knew that the way I saw things was the way that they were. And so the first time being challenged in seminary, that sort of opened my eyes to say, you know, all of us have a particular set of lenses in which we view the world. And there's nothing wrong with that. But I think sometimes it can be really challenging us for us to see the world the way that other people experience it. And I think what's happening now is that the world particularly our country, but even the world with this pandemic, we're starting to have those lenses removed and challenged a little bit. And to say, sort of like my my own wrestling with my diagnosis, when I finally had to say, you know what, everybody can't be wrong. 
I'm hearing people say these things about their interactions with me. And I didn't, and honestly, I didn't like it. And by that time, you know, I grew up being bullied. So I had learned how to deny, I learned how to deflect, I learned how to defend. But I really had a, a moment where I said, you know, everybody can't be wrong. And so I think that's what's happening in our country is that people are starting to see, you know what, for a lot of African Americans and people of color who have been saying these things for years, all those people can't be wrong. There's something that they're experiencing that differs from other people's experience. And I think it's, it's God's way of slowing us down with the pandemic to be able to open our eyes and to see that everybody doesn't experience this nation the same way as others. And I think violence aside, you know, obviously I don't, I don't think that's the answer, but I do think we are, we're having our eyes opened. And and I think that's a good thing. One of the things that was super important about the civil rights movement, if you studied Dr. King, it was, it was all about exposing the nation to what was going on in the South. He wanted the cameras there. He wanted, because his goal was to get people who could be allies to see what was going on. And And we saw that on the march in Selma. Once people saw what happened on that bridge, you saw an influx of all ethnicities coming down to join the movement because they finally were exposed to stories that they hadn't been exposed to. And I think that's what's going on now. So I'm hopeful. You know, I don't I don't particularly, again, think some of the the violence that's happening is good. But I will say I understand some of that, some of that anger. And so, yeah, I think I think God is is. Right. It's helping us to see more clearly uh, what's going on. And, and then we have a chance to respond either way. I think what you just said goes back to when we were talking about how do you deal with someone who has a diagnosis that is not visible mm. like, like you? If mm-hmm. you don't see it, it makes it very difficult to deal with it, to even acknowledge that it exists. And mm-hmm. so it's important for us to be transparent with one another, regardless of the cultural background we have, regardless of the color of our skin, regardless of geographically where we live. And like you said, the best way to deal with that is just to give everybody the benefit of the doubt, mm-hmm. to, to just to seek to be kind and to be gracious, to, to act to people the way Jesus acted with them. Mm-hmm. So that way you kind of encompass the fact that, you know what, I don't know what everybody is going through. And so I'm going to I'm going to give them some grace because they don't know what I'm going through either and I hope that they will give me the same grace. So, right. that, so and I think that is what has been missing in the world. Well obviously it has been. That's why Jesus had to come. We need that mm-hmm. we need that understanding. We need that kindness. We need that give a guy a break. Give a guy a second mm-hmm. chance. It, it, you don't know where he's been. You don't know what he's experienced. You don't know what he just, you know, you don't know that he just came out and got a diagnosis of cancer or that he's been pulled over the, by the police six times this month mm-hmm. because of the color of his skin. Mm-hmm. If you don't know that, it makes it more difficult to deal with it or to even understand that it's happening if you don't know. And so I think it's important for, like you said, like Dr. King wanted the cameras there so people would see it. Because if you see it, then you can start yeah. to deal with it. Yeah. And it's hard not to empathize, but like when you see the, the, the depths to which this impacts people's lives. And I think that's a lot of the reason why he wanted people to see it is, you know, how, how can I watch that as a Christian and say, man, there's something I don't. And the thing is, I don't have to understand everything, but I still can make a conscious effort to come and, 
and stand with you and stand beside you. You know, as the Bible says, the weep with those who weep mourn with those who mourn. You know, empathy is great, but I think sometimes, sometimes I think we overplay it because empathy literally means I can feel what you feel. I've had a similar experience, but if I haven't had that, I think the difference for us Christians is, is that I'm still called right. to be like, you know, the Samaritan and to yeah. stop what I'm doing to get down into the situation and do the best I can to bring some healing to that situation, even though I may have never experienced that in my life. But that's not where our compassion starts. It doesn't start because I know how you feel. It starts because we serve a God who commands us to love our neighbor as ourself. And so I don't, I don't need to necessarily have an emotional connection to your struggle in order for me to, to do the Christ-like thing. Right. Uh, and, I, and I think I tell people all the time, Jesus is a lot smarter than we give him credit for. <laughs> he, he knew what he was saying when he said to do these things and why it was important to do these things. Yeah. And we can recognize the injustice of it, even if we have not experienced that. Exactly. Micah tells us that's what God expects of us. This is what he requires, to do justice, hmm. to love kindness, and walk humbly with your God. But the justice part, you got to do. Yeah. And I, I, I think that there are things that we see in the world that injustice that should, as Christians should make us angry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Paul says, be angry, but don't sin. Exactly. So you've got to use that anger for something productive to help change that situation, to do that justice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I think about, you say that even Jesus chastising the Pharisees, he says, right. you know, you, you give a tithe of your mint and your, you know, all these things. He says, but you have neglected the more weightier matters mm-hmm. to, to live humbly, to do justice, you know, that Micah piece. And so it's almost Jesus' way of saying, you know what, you, you, you're doing okay. You're going to church, you're giving, you're doing all that. But there's some stuff that matters outside of just that uh, routine that we've got to pay attention to and we've got to do justice. So I, I think God is getting us there. I, I think it's going to be a painful process. But the more we see, the more we can we can figure out what it is that we need to do. Yeah. I think the walk humbly part is so, so important. And it's somewhere that a lot of people have not reached, unfortunately, to mm-hmm. just humble themselves and realize that there's a, there's a different world if you have a different color skin. You mentioned Dr. King. It's always appropriate to bring up his name in conversations like this. But I want to mention that you have a podcast, too, that you mm-hmm. okay. uh, on your latest episode, you, you talked about some, some stuff that Dr. King said like 12 years before you were even born, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. He has a great sermon. I know a lot of us have listened to his speeches, but he has a great sermon called The Guidelines for a Constructive Church. I encourage you to to look that up on YouTube. And in it, he's talking about really the slow pace of desegregation. And so he's preaching that sermon 12 years Mm -hmm. after the Supreme Court declared segregation unconstitutional. But he preached on June 5th, 1966. And so I just tied into that was 12 years before I was born and they were still struggling with the same issue. And he said that it was about 1% progress a year mm. that happened. And so, yeah, it's, it's a really great sermon. It's only about 25 minutes. So I would encourage people to listen to it. Yeah. And you just started doing this podcast, uh, I guess, just recently. Is this going to be a, a weekly thing for you? Bi-weekly? So right now I'm, I'm thinking monthly. I got a lot on my okay. plate. Of course. <laughs> um, <laughs> the podcast actually started off as something that I had written years ago about the lack of diversity within the autism community. So like I would look for conferences, especially when I was first diagnosed, I would look for conferences. I would look for trainings. I really want to learn more about me and about autism. And I realized that there's a lot of, there's a, a glaring lack of diversity. There weren't many people like me 
who look like me that were talking about it. And so I just, you know, in light of everything that's going on, I kind of revisited that, something I wrote years ago and thought about what is the pace of justice? What is the pace of progress? Dr. King was, again, preaching a sermon 12 years after something was declared unconstitutional and they still hadn't really gotten it done. And I, and in the podcast, I just related to the continued disparities in diagnosis of young African-American children. And why is it that in, in theory, if we're all distrib- displaying the same sort of behaviors and tendencies that what qualifies as a criteria to be diagnosed and why are African-American children still behind in being diagnosed? And so there's a point in the sermon, if you listen to it, where Dr. King talks about the church's job is to free people. But he has an interesting twist on it that I used. He talks about that our job is to free people from the biases. These are my own words. You have to listen to this sermon. But he, he talks about freeing people from the biases that slavery created. And so it's not just the freedom of enslaved Africans. It's the freedom of understanding that there were biases that were created because of that, that we still have to free people from. And that's the church's job, too. And so my point in the podcast was maybe the reason why African-American kids are not diagnosed as the same rate as white children, even though they're displaying the same behaviors, because when it, those behaviors come from a black child, it's interpreted as something different. <clears throat> and so just really causing us to think about why is that? I, I, I talked to a woman, I did a conference a couple of weeks ago and I was on a panel with a lady who her son, who's on the spectrum, who had an IEP, which is an individualized education plan and was only in the second grade. It had been suspended like three or four times. And my question is, okay, we know he's on the spectrum. He has a, a plan that you're supposed to follow. And yet your first response is to suspend him anytime he doesn't behave yet someone else on the spectrum who's non a non-minority can display the exact same behaviors and they don't get the same results wow right. so just just really asking us to think about that why is that yeah so yeah that that was sort of the essence of that tying that subject into what dr king talked about that the pace of justice was just so slow and maybe it's because people are we still are enslaved to some of the biases that slavery created we freed enslaved Africans, but our mindsets about people of color are still intertangled into mm-hmm. yeah. what that created. Yeah, I can imagine. I mean, when you go from just, what, uh, a hundred and a little more than 150 years ago, considering a black person to be three-fifths of a person mm-hmm. in a census, mm-hmm. you know, it takes generations and generations and generations to to get beyond that mentality. Yeah. Yeah. It's almost like, you know, the people of Israel coming out of Egypt, right? Like a whole generation had to pass before God could take them into the next phase of their, their relationship with him and the promise that he he gave them because they were still so ingrained in the culture of Egypt that it literally took. uh, And I'm not suggesting that people should die. I'm not saying that. <laughs> so I don't want any of the listeners to think of, I'm, I'm just saying, <laughs> but I do think there's something that we got to pay attention there that the culture in which we are raised is deeply ingrained. I tell people, you know, it wasn't that long ago. Like my parents were the age of my oldest son, who's about to be 15 when schools were, were beginning to be integrated. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And so th- these are my parents, not my grandparents. Right. So they spent, you know, about a fifth of their life under a system of separate but equal. Yeah. Uh, and Lamar, you and I both lived or you worked in a uh, a city where mm-hmm. honestly, you know, it was okay to have separate but equal facilities for kids to grow up in and play in up until 1991. So, I mean, this is not, this is not anything that is ancient news. You got to look at what it was that even allowed that situation to develop in the first Mm. place. Mm -hmm. And and I think that pre it predates slavery, although it was certainly highlighted there. That was, that was like the culmination of the evilness but mm-hmm. you, you just mentioned Israel was in, enslaved thousands of years ago. Mm-hmm. What is it inside of man that allows him to think it's okay to own another person? So that right. that is ingrained in us from mm-hmm. from the garden almost. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I, that's that's really the, the seat of that is that man's inability to not sin or to be selfish or to be vile mm-hmm. without a relationship with Jesus. Yeah. Yeah, and I think the 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 part that's troubling about that is, like, uh, so so we're all like, you know, we believe this in the original sin. We believe we're all sinners. Like, we don't escape that. Right. I, I think what's troubling is over the course of time, understanding that particular sin, and finding ways to continually justify why that's okay. See, so I can deal with the sin part because I'm a sinner just like anybody else. I I think wrong things about people. Uh, like, and there's no conviction about that. And when you look at the extent to which laws and statutes and things were passed to continually try to perpetuate that sinful mindset, that is what becomes troubling. It's like, exactly. not only do we not, do we know that it's wrong, but we're going to fight tooth and nail to continue. So, mm-hmm. so then you have to ask yourself, like, what's the benefit of that? What am I getting out of that? Because, you know, we talk about the, the freeing of enslaved Africans, but there's several laws that were passed after that to continue to try to ensure that those freed enslaved Africans remain second class citizens. Right? Yeah. And like, really think about that. What links are we willing to go to justify our sinful behavior? That to me is a troubling part. You know how difficult it is to get a law passed? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And and yet we got all these laws that were passed to make sure that black people quote unquote stayed in their place. Yeah. Uh, oh yeah. That, that says a lot to me about the how deeply it ingrained it, it's ingrained in our culture. But again, I think we're starting to see that and it's and it's being exposed for what it is. And we've got to you know, as a church say, you know what, even if I didn't know, it's hard to not know now. Right. And and what what are we going to do? Uh, as you said, how are we going to do justice? Right, right. So good. That is so good. Well, look, well you've got links to autismpastor.com in the show notes, which uh, you can get a link to your book and your podcast. And uh, you, man, you are busy. When when things open back up and, and Tri Cities is is ready to have a big gathering, you need a DJ. I'll bring my smoke machine. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll have a good party, man. Yeah, uh, let's do it. Invite the fire it. department. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so just warn them ahead of time. Up. Yeah. <laughs> oh, Lamar, it's been great getting to getting to talk to you again, man. And uh, thanks for joining. Well, thanks for having me. It was it was a, my pleasure. Man, you are never 
going to live that story. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I know. I know. Oh. Good times. <laughs> that, but you know what? That was a, a fascinating discussion on a couple of different angles. But I think it all, it all, they all work together very nicely with what Dr. Lamar Hardwick has gone through as someone who is diagnosed being on the autism spectrum where he's not he admits it there are social cues and things that he doesn't pick up on there are times when he doesn't realize his facial expression is communicating something he didn't mean to communicate and then have all that going on as an african-american male in america especially at this time when we're seeing so much division and controversy but we talked about what is the root of that problem you know, we, we discussed what, what is it about a civilization or this world that would allow us at any point in our history to think that it's okay for one person to own another person as a piece of property? Mm. And he talked about that, about sin being something that we need to adjust, address. And we mentioned several scriptures during the course of that discussion. And I went back and I did a little, another word search uh, in, in the Bible app, just typed in justice. And just a whole bunch, a whole bunch. And there are a couple that really just jumped out to me in addition to the ones that we shared during the podcast. In Proverbs, the exercise of justice is joy for the righteous, but is terror for the workers of iniquity. Ooh. The exercise, again, justice is something that must be done. It's not just a concept. It has to be carried out. There's some action required in the pursuit of justice. And then in Deuteronomy, justice and only justice you shall pursue, that you may live and possess the land which the Lord your God is giving you. There's a danger of pulling individual verses out of context. That sometimes you can make them say things that they don't say, or you don't get the full story of behind what they were originally written for. But when you take all of Scripture, you know, what does Jesus say about what we should seek? Things of the kingdom, the kingdom of God. Of God right? yeah. And all these others will be added to you. Well, what is the things of the kingdom of God? Well, I think justice has got to be a big part of it. Of course. Mm-hmm. There are two stories, and I won't go into deep, deep detail on them, but I'm going to share a little bit from the Scripture. Two stories that don't mention the word justice at all, but have to do with justice and the way God sees us, especially in light of a racial issue where so much of what is being done is based on outward appearance, the color of somebody's skin, the way they spell their last name, where they happen to be from, those kind of things. In First Samuel, Samuel the prophet, God has told him, I'm over Saul, who mm-hmm. is the king of Israel. You need to go anoint another king. And so he travels to Bethlehem, and he calls all the men of Bethlehem together, and they're going to do a sacrifice. And he gets to Jesse and Jesse's family, and he, God has him look over all of Jesse's sons. And he gets to Eliab, who was the oldest of Jesse's sons, and Samuel says to himself, surely the Lord's anointed is before me. But the Lord said to Samuel, don't look at his appearance or at the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For God sees, not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Mm. Now, we've heard that verse before, but to be honest with you, I didn't remember that that was the context in which that verse was. God used it as a way of telling Samuel in a good way, because this was 
the outward appearance of this guy was good. He looked, this is a kingly looking guy. He's probably the one God wants. No, he's not him. He went to the next brother, the next brother, the next brother. What? All the brothers are gone. And so Samuel says to Jesse, you got any more kids? Because God hasn't picked any of these. Well, there's my youngest, David. He's out tending the sheep. Bring him in. Hmm. And that was the one. Because God looks at the inside, not at the outside. Then there's a story of the Good Samaritan, which I think we're all familiar with. And I'm not sure who at the Bible companies decides where to put the headings for the beginnings of these stories. But if you look, even in the Bible app that I was using, the Good Samaritan starts a couple of verses below where I think it really should start. Mm. A lawyer stands up. Jesus is addressing a crowd. And a lawyer stands up wanting to put Jesus to the test and asks him, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Well, Jesus knew what the guy was doing. So he said, well, what's written in the law? How does it read to you? And so the lawyer says, well, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor is yourself. And Jesus said, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But the lawyer, wishing to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And so Jesus tells him the story of the Good Samaritan, Mm -hmm. a Jewish man going down the road between Jericho and Jerusalem, robbers fall on him strip him naked, beat him almost to death, steal everything he has. A priest comes by, goes on the other side of the road. Levite comes by, passes by, goes on the other side of the road. A Samaritan comes by. Now, if we were to tell this story today, it would be somebody going from Brooklyn to Queens and robbers fell on him and a waspy gentleman went by, businessman went by, and then uh, a, a Jewish man went by and passed him on the other side, and some black guy walked up and picked him up because the Samaritans were looked down upon. They were had Jewish heritage, but they were like half-breeds, and, right. and the Jews of Jesus' time. At one point, Jesus even told his disciples, don't go to the Gentiles, don't go to the Samaritans, only go to the children of, of Israel with the message when he sent people out at one point. And you remember the story of the woman at the well. That, she was a Samaritan woman when Jesus was talking to her. And she was amazed that Jesus, a Jew, would talk to her, a Samaritan, just right. because there was that much conflict between the two different peoples. But Jesus tells this story of the Samaritan being the hero of the story. And then when he's done and he wraps it up, and I'm not going to go through the, you know, the story of the yeah. good Samaritan. At the end of the story, Jesus said, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And the lawyer said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, go and do the same. Guy couldn't even bring himself to say the Samaritan. Right. (laughs) He just said, the one who showed him mercy. Mercy and justice. Sometimes we think of them as mutually exclusive. But they don't have to be. We have to do justice. When we see injustice, we have to. Have to do it. One of the other verses I found that talked about justice was do justice, reprove the wicked, mm-hmm. which means admonish them, tell them to knock it off, stand against them, and then fight for the widow and, and, and be a voice for the orphans. God wants us to do that stuff here on earth. When I was in seminary, there was some publication or something where you could, could look through and it'd have help wanted ads from churches. And I remember reading from one church, I think it was an independent Baptist church. Their heading was no social gospel. Hmm. 
which and I can understand a little. They wanted someone who's going to preach the gospel and not be too worried about social issues, you know, being mm-hmm. a champion for this and that. But I thought to myself, these people don't understand the gospel. If the gospel isn't social, it's nothing. Right. Jesus was highly social and yes, highly, mm-hmm. highly involved in what was going on in the society of his day. And we as Christians and as his emissaries, as his ambassadors, as his disciples, have to be involved. And the things that make God angry, man, they better make us angry too. Mm. Justice has to be done. God demands that. But there's also that mercy side. And at the cross, we see that perfect union. How can you do this? How can, you, how can God forgive us? That's mercy, but where's the justice? Because we deserve to be punished because we've sinned. We violated that covenant with God. Well, God came up with a solution. Justice was done because Jesus shed his blood in our place. That's justice. It had to happen. And Jesus took it on himself. And then that's the mercy, the perfect, perfect mating of those two concepts that sometimes seem to be so antithetical to each other. Mercy and justice. So God is totally satisfied now because the price has been paid on our behalf and we can enter in to a relationship with him. As I've said a lot of times, during prayer times or whenever, our relationship with God has to impact our relationship with other people. And if God is willing to die for us, he's willing, he died for everybody. Mm-hmm. And that ought to be enough for us. No matter what color of someone's skin is, doesn't matter what language they speak, doesn't matter where they come from, it doesn't matter who they worship. Jesus died for them. Mm-hmm. And so we've got to figure out a, a constructive way that when we see injustice, to do justice. Right. It's so good. Yeah. And whether you're black or white. Or brown or, or yellow or on green. On the spectrum or, right. or not, yeah. yes. the ground is level at the foot of the cross. That's right. right. That's absolutely mm. Mm-mm-mm. Guys, I think that's a good way to wrap up season one. Are season we wrapping one? up oh, season one? What are we doing? <laughs> yes, we are. We're actually going to take a break. <laughs> we're going to take a break for a few weeks, and we're going to start season two mm-hmm. on August 27th. And But wait, wait there may more. be some yeah. uh, surprises on your feet, so just pay attention to your feed because we'll probably be popping in here and there with something. So uh, just, you know. Keep us in mind. Absolutely. We're still going to be giving you something. Also visit the website because I have been very remiss in populating it with any kind of bonus material. We've got several yeah. several podcasts that we did Zoom videos on uh, 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 an episode or two ago. We did the What's on Your Wall in My Office. Right. No, there's <laughs> well, no it's been pictures a busy or videos. Weeks, it, it has been. <laughs> but with this break now until August 27th, there'll be some time to get some of that stuff up as well. Mm-hmm. It won't show up in your podcast feed, but it will show up on our website at thejoyfm.com. And but we've we'll got, have links to that. Right. Yeah, exactly. All the links will be in the show notes for you too. But until then, if you have not yet subscribed, I mean, we're on episode 17. Mm-hmm. I don't know what you're waiting on. <laughs> you can still subscribe uh, through Apple, Google Play, everywhere else that you find your podcasts. We would appreciate a five-star rating mm-hmm. and review. And, you know, that's just going to help people find us. Absolutely. And then also, not only can you 
follow us on our website, but also we're on a lot of the socials, Instagram, Facebook, the YouTube, uh, you know. And who so, knows, for season two, maybe we'll get on that TikTok. Hey, <laughs> look out. Look out, kids. <laughs> uh, until then, though, if you have some suggestions for us on who we can feature in season two, we would love your suggestions. Email us your comments, questions, suggestions for future podcasts at FindingJoyPodcast at TheJoyFM.com. So for Rob, Benji, I'm Jerry. Thank you so much for allowing us to be a part of your day today. Please do subscribe, and we will see you with Season 2 of the Finding Joy Podcast.